Welcome to Two Inch Heels, an autobiographical novel of my 11-week odyssey backpacking through Western Europe in 1973 at age 18, written and read by me, Cooper Zale. Part 7, Rail Pass. If you are finding this episode of my podcast without listening to the previous episodes first, you may want to listen to them to get some context on the story before proceeding with this one, Chapter 7 of the story itself. In today's episode, my new travel partner Jack decides to stay in Coeur, and in a wave of bravado I continue on my own, planning to hitchhike across the Alps to Geneva where I can catch a direct train back to Munich, finally using my rail pass and hopefully hook up with Angelica and Helmut. It was Wednesday, October 3rd, when I awoke in the chilly mail bunk room of the youth hostel in Coeur. Ensconced in my toasty down sleeping bag and not wanting to surrender yesterday by getting up and facing today, my consciousness was still processing the profound events of the past couple days. The tears, the fears, but mostly the joys. By the time I finally exited my cocoon to acknowledge that yes, life goes on, I was the only one left in the bunk room. I put on my clothes and debated trying to wear my hiking boots again. But since I was doing so well in my heels, and there didn't seem to be a sign of rain that might mess them up, I'd wear them again instead. For the third day in the row, I decided not to take a cold shower, but at least used a wet, slightly soapy washcloth on some key body parts instead. I entered the main room, and as I figured, my erstwhile travel partner Jack and my more recent comrades Jared, Bublil, Peter, and particularly Osild had already departed. I ate my stash of granola and yogurt, the latter having stayed nicely cool in the unheated dormitory room, and pondered the state of my heart and soul. I thought of Osild, who with her calm and caring demeanor, her good energy, had made the effort to really connect with me. She'd even asked to and written thoughtful words in my journal, like she really cared about me and wanted me to remember her. We'd shared moments of real intimacy together, her soft warm rear end on my lap in the backseat of Jared's car and walking back from the tavern together. It struck me that the connection between us had a spark of sexual energy to it. People talked about sexual tension, but there was nothing tense about it in our case. We relaxed and dropped our guard around each other. We didn't want to possess or consume the other, just be our true selves with each other. We got metaphorically naked with each other, if not physically so. I realized that was how I wanted it to work when someday I got sexually intimate with someone. I wanted it to be both letting down your guard and taking down your pants. Not just that rush of shared lust leading to grappling bodies fucking each other before they thought better of it. And thinking about all my female peers over the years, my best relationships with them all had that spark of sexual energy, of naked intimacy to them. I was happy to just have that spark. Some of them figured I must have wanted it to be overtly sexual, and they made the signals they were open to that and I would freak out and back off, and they would be confused and even hurt. 
But even the ones that were not available or not really interested in having a sexual relationship, still I would have that spark with them. The hostel around me seemed transformed by my comrade's absence, no longer feeling like my temporary sanctuary, just a place with a sad memory of a brief happy time that no longer was. It was the same sense of loss I had come to feel after each of the twenty-some theater productions I had been involved in over the previous four years. The connection forged during each production, relationships built around a particular collaborative contribution to that undertaking, would never quite be the same after that. In this case, I would most likely never see these people again. There was no savoring a moment past. I felt compelled to leave, to move forward in search of another opportunity to encounter and connect with others in the course of this odyssey that I must allow to run its course, exhaust its budget, before I could proudly go home, the triumphant traveler. I returned to the bunk room, where my red metal frame Kelty backpack, my one enduring comrade through all my experience to date, sat propped up at the end of my now former sleeping place. I sorted and stuffed the various components of my kit into their spaces within the sections and subdivisions of my nylon bag. My three changes of clothing, toiletries, first aid kit, food, metal combo, knife, spoon, fork, bottle and can opener, water bottles, maps, youth hostel guide, rolled up and yet to be used tube tent, poncho, knit cap, sunglasses, journal, notebooks, and other stuff. Since I decided to wear my heels, I'd have to hang my hiking boots on the back of my pack. With my sleeping bag bungeed to the aluminum frame below, it all added up to just over 50 pounds, about 23 kilos if I was thinking like a European. In my jeans pocket went my petty cash bills and coins, my small compass, and my latest Swiss army knife, having lost one already. The bulk of my money in the American Express traveler's checks and my crucial documents, passport, rail pass, international student ID card, driver's license, youth hostel card, list of phone numbers and addresses, fit into the thin nylon money belt that I wore around my waist day and night, only taking it off to take the occasional shower, so for me, not for three days since I left Munich. I thanked the hostel staff for their hospitality, asked for directions out to the main highway, shouldered my heavy pack with my big black boots dangling, and headed out the door and down the now familiar one-way road, where I had weathered my encounter with the police, pondered the abyss of incarceration or worse, and got my comrades safely home that previous night, only to say goodbye to them. A Beatles song as they often did, fired up in my mind's jukebox from that amazing sequence of strung-together songs and song fragments from their Abbey Road album. In this case, the sequence of golden slumbers carry that weight in the end, with bits of the evocative lyrics triggered by my situation. Once there was a way to get back homeward. Once there was a way to get back home. Sleep, pretty darling, do not cry, and I will sing a lullaby. Boy, you're gonna carry that weight, carry that weight a long time. 
and the lyrics concluding with wisdom that haunted me. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Well, at least I was carrying the non-metaphorical component of that weight downhill at the moment. Maybe three miles total down and through cozy little Coor for one last time and out to the main route south. On the way, I found a store and bought a pair of leather fleece-lined gloves, an important logistical milestone. Hitchhiking, let's do this. I waited a long time by the highway outside of town on a chilly but sunny morning. I was grateful for the sun, particularly on this day that I planned to be hitchhiking, and so I did not want it to rain. The traffic was light, and the cars and trucks that zipped by seemed unfazed by my protruding, thankfully gloved thumb. I was truly on my own again, about to hitchhike across the Alps, as I had written in my latest postcard to my mom. Having consulted my now familiar Western Europe map, it was about 10 kilometers down this highway from Coeur to the south along the Rhine River and then west across the middle of Switzerland through its iconic mountains to Geneva. There I figured I could best catch a train back to Munich to try again to hook up with Angelica and Helmut. My goal for the day was to make it to Geneva, but failing that, at least to Andermatt, a small town just big enough to appear in my map about halfway between Coeur and Geneva. Since I had started hitchhiking the previous fall, the hundred miles back from college in Kalamazoo, Michigan, to my hometown in Ann Arbor, all the rides I had gotten were from male types, usually from my age cohort. This day was the first time that it was a woman who finally pulled over and offered me a ride. She was dressed casually and probably in her forties. She spoke some English, and after a brief, quiet moment, as she started down the road again, she began to interrogate me with questions in a friendly sort of way. Feeling alone, though not unhappily so at the moment, I really opened up and spilled out my Europe trip story and eventually highlights of my whole life story. She listened attentively, nodding at all the right places while she kept her eyes on the road, and then began to respond by sharing some of her own story. Her name was Genevieve, and she wove her narrative of being married and a mom with four kids all younger than I was. Her husband was an executive for a big European company, and currently out of the country on one of those frequent, long business trips. She definitely was part of that cohort of my Aunt Pat's generation, cohort of my mentors, which included the head of my YTU theater group, Robert, and such key voices of my Greek choruses, Paul Simon and John Lennon. They all spoke to me with what I felt was great insight and wisdom. There is something about being alone, especially when you're a traveler in a foreign place and encountering someone else who is also alone, at least for your encounter. If there is a basic trust established and some indication of shared values or worldview, a fairly deep connection can be made fairly quickly. If I had been traveling with Angie or Jack, or she had been in the car with her husband or kids, neither of us might have been as forthcoming. It somehow would not have been appropriate to share so deeply with a stranger in front of one's regular companions, like you were being unfaithful to them somehow. It again struck me. It was that little sexual spark at play. She was married, double my age, but we could still have a little bit of a spark between us. 
She was one of those people that enjoyed dropping her guard if the person she was with, even a stranger like me, made all the right signals that they respected who she was, would not judge or take advantage of her, and was truly interested to hear her story. As long as no one explicitly acknowledged that spark, and it was thoughtfully modulated by both of us, then we could get metaphorically naked and conversationally pleasure ourselves in front of and by means of the other. She would reveal something. I would make a knowing remark, acknowledging and appreciating a bit of her metaphorical nakedness, thus a moment of shared intimacy. Then I would reveal something of myself and let her enjoy and comment. And then I would enjoy her comment, but not let the feedback loop get cycling too hot. So in and out we'd go. No consummation, no final orgasm, just stimulating foreplay. She dropped her guard, disrobed her psyche a bit, and said she missed her husband when he was away so much. I nodded and thought for a moment, properly acknowledging and respecting her revelation. Only then I would respond, letting down my own guard, getting a bit metaphorically naked, saying that I missed my travel partner, Angie. She would sigh, then a bit boldly inquire if Angie had been my girlfriend. I would sigh and reveal that she was just a friend, but I had hoped that maybe something would come of our travels together. She would make a sad face and nod. It was all verbal and nonverbal cues. It respected boundaries, but it was intimate and had that delicious little spark dancing between us. Then one of us would break the spell before it got too strong by commenting on, say, something we saw outside. In and out. Genevieve said she lived close by, and as the hour was now close to noon, she asked if I would like to join her and her kids for lunch at her house. I was so touched by the offer, her sharing of her life, her house, and her table with a traveler, and though it might limit my ability to get across the mountains that day, I felt compelled to accept. She drove me to her beautiful house in the little village of Richenau, up on a hill overlooking the coming together of two headwaters of the Rhine River, after which it continued north, spreading into the Bodensee, then west forming the border between Switzerland, Germany, and France. While she worked on getting food ready in the kitchen, I sat at their dining room table with her four kids, a teenage daughter and her three younger brothers. The daughter and her oldest brother, who had both learned a fair amount of English, engaged me in conversation, curious like their mom about what brought me to travel through Europe and what it was like where I lived in the States. Her younger brothers listened and did their best to cobble together a question or two in my language as well, like how heavy my backpack was. I tried to answer all their questions enthusiastically with simple words that they might understand. The lasagna Genevieve served was delicious, and I ate it feeling like an honorary, if temporary, member of the family. After eating and continued conversation, she offered and took me farther down the road west to the nearby town of Lands, where she felt I would have better luck catching a ride west across the mountains. In just a short span of several hours, I had bonded with her and her kids so much that I was already feeling that sense of loss again but I was beginning to feel a certain level of growing confidence that the universe would somehow provide for me. I just needed to put out my thumb and be patient. It was a long wait until a young Swiss guy pulled over and offered me a ride a few more kilometers up the road to the next little town. Not much of a lift, and possibly problematic if I got stuck somewhere when it got dark without accessible inexpensive lodging. 
But the hitchhiker's etiquette is not to refuse a ride, any ride, so I accepted with as much gratefulness as I could muster. After he dropped me off, another long wait there, and I was beginning to worry about losing my light before getting somewhere I could find a place to stay. But I was finally picked up by a middle-aged American woman and her young adult daughter driving to Andermatt, about 60 kilometers down the road. I didn't have a watch, but given that it was late afternoon and the sun went down early behind the mountains, I quickly decided and announced to them that that was my destination for the day as well. They shared with me that the daughter had been living in Berlin and her mom had flown over from Seattle to join her and now travel around together. As we approached Andermatt from the east, the two-lane highway became a series of switchbacks winding up into a high mountain pass with a little town in the valley on the other side. It was a ski resort town with a population of maybe 1,500 but also a 1,000 beds for guests in little hotels, zimmers, and pensions with this being the off-season. I noted it actually had a train station, and since my rail pass was good starting the next morning, I figured I might not need to spend another day hitching. The three of us found a reasonably priced Zimmer, a German word for room or chamber, and generally a private house with bedrooms to rent for the night, the two of them in one and I in my own. We decided to share an impromptu dinner together with the cold meat they were carrying plus a loaf of bread I bought at a small bakery in town. We sat in our host's main room, talking about our lives and our travels late into the evening, again the universe providing me with an opportunity for conversation and camaraderie, which I seized for all it was worth. It was after midnight before we said goodnight and retired to our rooms. Mine was a cozy little bedroom with a view of the mountains between the adjacent buildings. The bed had what looked like a huge floppy feather pillow that covered the entire thing, and was in fact a thick comforter used to cover you and keep you warm. It was a cold night and I was happy to snuggle myself under it, and rather than being consumed by loneliness, I felt instead the bounty of the universe that I had sensed earlier. In the morning, I said my goodbye to mom and daughter, wished them well on their journeys, and very theatrically hoisted my heavy backpack on my back, again playing the self-sufficient and unflappable world traveler for their consumption at least. If I could not yet truly be that person I wanted to be, at least I could pretend for others who I left behind and would have no further opportunity to divine the real truth. One final too casual wave of the hand and I set off for the train station just across town. I was eager actually to try out my rail pass and find my way back to Munich to hopefully now hook up with Angelica and Helmut. Having learned by now not to buy the pricey food in train stations, I bought my new favorite breakfast of yogurt and granola in a little grocery store and ate it in the cute little pocket station waiting for the train. I quickly learned how totally cool my rail pass was. I did not have to wait in any ticket lines or get a ticket at all, but could simply board any train and show my pass to the conductor when he came by asking for tickets. As long as I wasn't sitting in a first-class compartment, I was good to go. For the next two months, all the trains of Western Europe would be at my unlimited disposal. It felt like I suddenly had the great power bestowed on me to go anywhere I wanted, except home, of course. Between hitching and the pass, I figured I could get just about anywhere at no additional cost, ever concerned as I was about my budget. Based on the schedule board at the Andermatt station, the next train due in that morning was headed north to Zurich. 
From there, I figured I would find a train to Munich. Like most of the train rides I took through Switzerland, it was a picturesque ramble around and occasionally through mountains, across deep gorge-spanning bridges, and through high alpine or lower elevation river valleys. Three hours later, I stepped off the train in the much larger Zurich station. Liberated from the ticket lines by my pass, I had also liberated myself from encountering the occasional helpful ticket agent who perhaps spoke enough English to help me navigate the extensive and complicated European rail network. So instead of waiting in often long lines and maybe get, though possibly not, an agent that spoke some English, I did my best to read the train Opfart departure board and consult the rail network map I had brought with me along with a perhaps more detailed rail network map I found posted on the station wall. I loved the way the electromechanical board would reset itself every couple minutes, all the character positions in each row spinning and clicking through all the possible numbers and letters like slot machines, and finally constructing character by character a new destination, departure, or arrival time. Based on the various information displays I consulted, it looked like there was a train leaving shortly, headed east to Innsbruck, Austria, and from there changed to Munich. Lacking any additional consultation with perhaps a helpful human, I jauntily found and boarded my train. What I was yet to learn about European trains was the fact that in many of the larger long-haul trains, certain cars in that train, most Europeans that spoke English called them coaches, went to a particular city, but others did not. In major stations, coaches would at times be detached from train A and attached to train B to get to the destination C. You might be on a train going to Innsbruck, but the coach you were on was going to a different destination. An on-the-ball conductor would make the effort of notifying riders based on their destination what coaches they should be on. But me with my rail pass, rather than a ticket with an explicit destination, sometimes the conductors would not ask my destination or I would forget to share it with them. I learned this the hard way. Some six hours after departing Zurich, when the train I was on did not pull out of the station stop with the rest of the train to Innsbruck. Ironically, I ended up back in Coor, where I had been two days before. Now into the evening, I found a train leaving in an hour or so north to Lindau, just over the border of Germany. From there, it looked like there was a direct train to Munich. I exited the station to make my grocery run. It felt weird to be briefly back in Coor, where I had just made such memories of connecting with fellow travelers and navigating my traumatic encounter with local police. But soon I was on my train again, headed north along the Rhine River Valley back towards Germany. When I finally debarked from my train in Lindau, a quick look at the Abfahrt board told me it was now 8 p.m. and the next train to Munich was not until 9 a.m. the next morning. There was no youth hostel in town and I was tired from my long day of riding the rails and the thought of spending the night in the train station did not appeal to me in the least. But what I did notice was there was still the counterpart train coming from Munich to Bern, stopping here in Lindau shortly. With my pass, thus ticket cost not a factor, I could ride that train to Bern and then back through Lindau in the morning and on to Munich. Better to overnight on a moving train than in a dreary train station. I would later learn from some of my fellow travelers with rail passes that this was a standard trick when all else failed. 
using long back-and-forth train rides as an impromptu overnight lodging of sorts. With luck, finding an empty bench in a compartment with a place to stretch out and sleep if you were lucky enough to find one. Or at worst, a single seat to close your eyes and maybe semi-sleep sitting up. So after crossing Switzerland's mountains, through mountain tunnels, across gorge-spanning bridges, and through its valleys all day, I was going to do it again, twice even, until I would pass back through Lindau tomorrow morning around 9 a.m. on my way finally to Munich. Before my train to Bern departed, I called Angelica and Helmut's number and was so gratified to hear Angelica's voice answer on the other end. Her English was somewhat limited, and it was a confused conversation. I managed to explain to her my situation and that I should be on the train from Bern tomorrow getting into Munich after lunch. She managed to convey that she and Helmut would pick me up at the train station when I got in before my phone ran out of money and cut me off. Now dog-tired and thoroughly frazzled, I boarded the first leg of my overnight train odyssey slash lodging. Unfortunately for my plan, the train was fairly crowded. It had originated in Munich and had accumulated a lot of passengers by the time it got to Lindau. So as I walked the narrow hallway along the second-class compartments, looking for one with untaken seats to maybe sleep in, I found none. In the process, I did encounter some other American guys my age, also with their backpacks, also headed for Bern. I joined them in their compartment. The four of them and I, and all our big frame packs, our long hair, and our instant camaraderie as fellow freak flag backpackers. As our train snaked its way through the now dark mountainous country outside the train window, we talked for an hour or two, talking shop mostly, about all the aspects of backpacker travel through these realms. Hitchhiking, riding trains, hostels, cheap food and activities, and so on. I learned from them that there were big boats you could ride up and down the Rhine and Moselle River between Mines, Koblenz, and Trier for not much money. Finally, the rush of adrenaline from sharing with members of my cohort having subsided, I mostly dozed off until we got to Bern. When we got off in Bern, we had several hours to kill before our respective departing trains, including mine back the way we came and on to Munich. We decided to go down into the lower level of the big station and look for a place to rest for the interval, and found it an obvious area in the corner where others were doing the same. It was a mix of young backpackers like us, some middle-aged European men, and a few older men who, for lack of a shave, looked like they might be homeless. We got to know one of the homeless guys, Carl, who had pursued us at first asking if we needed help finding a place to sleep or something to eat. We shared with him our situation and some of the remnants of food we had in our various packs as we sat on the rubber mat floor and joked about our accommodations. He asked us if we wanted beer, and we all acknowledged that that would be wonderful, but of course figured it was impossible at two in the morning. Carl said he would get us some, and he took off and said he would return soon. We looked at each other and laughed at the thought that this bum was going to find and be able to purchase beer in the middle of the night and then share it with us. But a half hour later, we all went crazy when he reappeared carrying a bag full of six or seven bottles of beer. I noted to myself at least that it was sad that it took all that to get us to really be friendly with him, all of us kind of shining him on because we judged him to be homeless. 
Sharing the beers got us going, and the conversation with Carl and us backpacker types ranged on all subjects for the next couple hours. First it was music, a topic on which everyone had a lot to say, but no consensus was found. He shared with us the American singers he liked, Frank Sinatra, Ray Charles, some women singers we had never heard of and which he was shocked we hadn't. We shared with him the iconic musicians from our generation's musical pantheon, including the Beatles, Simon and Garfunkel, Stevie Wonder, etc. He kind of grudgingly acknowledged our preferences, as if he thought we were slaves to the current fashion rather than real music lovers. Then we talked politics. Looking at all our white, waspy faces, perhaps, he shared with us that a big problem with the world still today was the Jews. He thought that Hitler had been the only leader bold enough to have the real answer. We were shocked and stunned into silence, casting furtive looks at each other as if to say, Oh my God, this guy's a Nazi. Noting our body language and nonverbal recoil, he tried his best to recover by lauding Americans as some sort of saviors of the world. He noted with irony that we won World War II only to lose the post-war world by not having Patton invade Eastern Europe before the Russians did so. He loved Patton and was pleased when I said my dad served in his army during the last year of the war. He also said categorically that he felt there was no hope for the world. No hope for good people, putting himself and us in that category. Too chicken given the circumstances, and given the basic protocol of not offending one's host who provided the free beer, I did scramble up the courage to say emphatically that I did feel there was hope for the world, that our generation was profoundly different than our parents, and we had a vision to change things once we were in power. He smiled and said that I was saying that only because I was still young. The discussion went back and forth for more than an hour, with my comrades finally joining in to try to help me defend this idealistic position as best we could. Even though I figured we were not going to change his rooted mind, I wanted him to at least know there were some people out there who had not given up and were fighting for hope and change in a better world. People who were not secretly on Hitler's side. Then finally, the announcement on the public address that the train to Munich was boarding. Now wielding my laminated plastic card that told any conductor in Western Europe that I could ride their train for no additional charge, I was quickly learning the axioms of rail travel 101. One was, of course, don't buy food in train stations or on the train. It could cost at least twice as much as buying it in a store outside the station. This, of course, took some planning ahead, but hey, that's what you do to stick to the $6 a day budget. Another on display here in Bern was that if you boarded a train at its start point, particularly if there wasn't a crush of passengers, you could have your pick of seats. In this case, I could lay claim to an entire bench seat for sleeping, at least until newly boarding passengers came into my compartment and cajoled or shamed me into surrendering two of the three seats I was bogarting to use the dope-smoking lingo, which many of us hippie-ass traveler types used. Yet another was to tell the conductor what your destination was so he could assist you with not ending up on a train car that would be switched into another train and not end up at that destination. Following that last axiom paid off in this case. When the conductor came by asking for tickets and I showed him my rail pass, I told him I was riding the train through to Munich. 
good thing because after that encounter, a big noisy family had decided to share my compartment. I had moved to another coach where I found a compartment with a free bench seat so I could continue to sleep horizontally rather than struggle to sleep vertically, which had been the whole point of taking this long back and forth overnight journey in the first place. I was way past tired now, but our disturbing conversation with Carl the recalcitrant Nazi had my mind percolating. I pondered war and peace and the world situation going forward, particularly the brewing trouble in the Middle East, and whether I and my generational comrades could really make any difference. Were my own radical ideas simply the naive posturing of some sort of dilettante overgrown kid? Was there really hope for the world? I decided I was going to keep behaving as if the latter were the case. In a light sleep when the train finally got into Lindau, the conductor was on the ball enough, as well as nice enough, to wake me and give me a heads up that I was on a coach that would not be going on to Munich. I thanked him profusely, shouldered my pack, and staggered sleepily forward to a train car that was headed to my destination, though not finding a compartment empty enough where I could stretch out. Sitting in an upright position, sharing that side of the compartment with someone else, I managed to go back into a half-sleep till finally the light of the new day illuminated the coach, and the picturesque Bavarian countryside we were traversing beckoned my mind to open still-tired eyes and peer out. Though technically awake, eyes open and looking out at the weekday world going by, it was still a jolt into full consciousness when the conductor rattled open the compartment door to announce... München. When I finally staggered off the train, I had spent most of the last 30 hours crisscrossing Switzerland by rail. On the platform, I noticed a short, perky woman smiling and waving at me next to a taller and more reserved but also smiling man. Their faces clicked with my memory of three years ago. It was Angelica and Helmut. I gave them a sort of subdued wave back and walked towards them and did my best to smile in my current trance state, certainly happy to not be on my own for at least the next few days. So concludes the seventh chapter of Two Inch Heels. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next chapter where I finally get to enjoy the hospitality of Angelica and Helmut as troubling events are happening in the larger world.